Shalom, I'm Yael Ziegler. Today is our second shiur on Megillat Eicha. And in today's shiur, as I mentioned last time, I'm going to attempt to give a little bit of an introduction to biblical poetry with an attempt to apply some of these ideas specifically to our study of Eicha. Uh, now, I say this rather cautiously because, of course, giving an introduction to biblical poetry in a half an hour is... Uh, certainly impossible, um, and yet an introduction is, in my opinion, absolutely necessary for beginning our study of Avecha. Um, for further reading about uh, biblical poetry, I would turn to Kugel's book, James Kugel's book on uh, the idea of biblical poetry, perhaps Robert Alter's book, The Art of Biblical Poetry, and uh, Jan Fokelman's book, Reading Biblical Poetry. There are, of course, many other very good books and very good articles out there. These are some of the basic books on biblical poetry. In today's class, I'm going to be using an article uh, by Adele Berlin called, in which she tries to offer some introductory ideas towards biblical poetry called Reading Biblical Poetry. Uh, some of my general introductory ideas today will be based on Adele Berlin's article, and then I'm going to try to take some of those ideas and apply them specifically to Megillat Echa. However, before I begin, I'd like to ask the question, what is the purpose of poetry? Why are, in fact, certain books written in poetry? Why is poetry written at all? Um, and specifically, why is Echa written in poetic form and not in prose? I'm going to read for you Webster's definition of poetry. Uh, Webster's writes, poetry is writing that for formulates a concentrated imaginative awareness of experience in language chosen and arranged to create a specific emotional response through its sound, meaning, and rhythm. In other words, poetry tries to express the inexpressible. It's not trying to convey facts and information, but rather trying to create something that uh, leads its readers to an emotional response. Through using all sorts of different um, techniques, it's trying to uh, create an emotional response in its reader. Of course, the experience of retelling emotions as opposed to events is such that these emotions felt by the author are essentially inexpressible in words. Any attempt to try to express an emotion results in perhaps a feeling that I've done something trite, that I have not properly conveyed my emotion. And so poetry comes to attempt to elicit an emotional response in its readers rather than conveying to you my emotions, but an attempt instead to try to evoke similar emotions in you. This is like, I, I suppose, like any sort of medium of art. Um, and this, of course, is why Shir HaShirim is written in poetry, because it's trying to express love or shiratayam, trying to express the joy and the awe of having experienced the great experience of Kriyayam Suf. Now, of course, the same is true with regard to Echa. Here we have a very different emotion, the emotion of grief and pain and mourning, and this emotion is certainly very palpably felt throughout our reading of Megillat Echa. It's an experience which we try to uh, evoke on Tisha B'Av every year. We read Echa together on Tisha B'Av in shul with the lights dim, sitting on the floor, and the specific uh, language and uh, techniques used by Megillat Echa, its sound, its meaning, its rhythm, all the techniques that we're going to be exploring today, is designed not to tell us today in 2009 of the emotions felt by the writer of Echa all the way back 
back in 586 BCE, but rather to try to evoke similar emotions in us today so that we are also experiencing the grief and the pain of Echa. That's perhaps the general idea of the medium of poetry. Turning specifically to biblical poetry, um, it's uh, the it's important to note that poetry is really not the chiddush of the Tanakh. All ancient books, uh, narrative and otherwise, were written in poetry. However, um, biblical narrative is really almost exclusively written in prose. There are certain exceptions, like certain Mizmorei Tihilim or Shoftim Perakei, uh, which is Shirat Devorah, or perhaps also Shirat Hayam, where we have some sort of retelling of biblical narrative in poetic form. Uh, but generally speaking, biblical narrative is written in prose. Um, nevertheless, about one-third of Tanakh is poetry, including Tihilim, Eov, Shir Hashirim, and arguably many of the Nevi'im, the Nevi'im Achronim. Um, poems are also sometimes interspersed within a given narrative, such as, as we mentioned before, Shirat Hayam, or uh, Shirat Azinu, or Shirat Dvorah, or Shirat Chana, or Shirat David, or Kinat David, or the Brachot of Yaakov. Right. So uh, throughout the Torah, even in the middle of telling a story, sometimes there is a poem that is uh, interspersed within this story or that appears as part of the story. One of the problems with poetry is that it's not always easy to identify poetry, and scholars often argue as to the properties of a given text, whether in fact it constitutes poetry or prose. To offer a somewhat general kind of definition for biblical poetry, or for poetry in general, I'm going to read from Adele Berlin's article where she says as follows. She says, poetry is a form of elevated discourse that differs in certain formal properties from prose. And she, she also acknowledges that prose is also somewhat elevated discourse and not a record of everyday speech, certainly in the Tanakh. Uh, she goes on though and says, some argue that the difference between, she's talking about the difference between poetry and prose, is a matter of degree rather than of kind. But at a certain point, quantitative difference becomes qualitative difference. Um, she goes on to say that the identification of biblical poetry, the definition of what constitutes poetry in the Bible, has been a troubling issue, a difficult issue, since early post-biblical times. And she explains that every generation of scholars has applied its own criteria, um, and yet the the, uh, the the consensus is, there is still no consensus, the jury is still out. There's still a certain amount of argument as to what constitutes poetry. Therefore, it is very important to try to identify the features of poetry. What I'm more interested in than that for in today's year is not uh, determining whether something's poetry, but rather understanding the features of poetry and how they enhance the text and also enable us to actually experience those emotions, which uh, seems to be the goal of poetry. And in general, Tanakh doesn't off, offer us any real indicators uh, what is poetry, what is not poetry. Certain terms used for poetry in the Tanakh include a shira, a song, a mizmor, uh, uh, a kina, which is a lamentation, which is specifically the kind of poetry that we're going to be discussing today, because, of course, echa is a series of lamentations. In fact, Chazal's um, uh, term for their, their title 
title for the book Echa. We call it Echa because the first word of the book is Echa, Echa Yashva Vadad. But Chazal did not call this book by its first word. Rather, they called the book Kinot, Sefer Kinot, which means the book of lamentations. Um, and so, in fact, what we do have here is a, a book of five chapters of lamentations, laments over the destruction of Yerushalayim. What are, in fact, these features that define biblical poetry, and how do we find them in Megillat Echa? Well, the first thing that we say about about poetry, and biblical poetry in particular, is that it is a type of elevated discourse. In fact, <clears throat> poetry sets off the words of the text from ordinary words, reminding us by its very artificiality that we're not dealing with objective reality, but rather we're dealing with uh, subjective emotions. Instead of saying, for example, in Perak Aleph, that God burned our city um, and and reduced it to ashes. Instead, we have a poetic description in Pasuk Yud Gimel: "Mimarom shalach eish be'atzmotai va'yirdena." From up high, he sent a fire into my bones, and it came down. The continuation of the pasuk describes how the enemies uh, trapped us, right? How the enemies took us into Galut. But instead of saying the enemies took us into Galut. The Pasuk tells us, Paras reshet liraglai. He spread out a net for my feet. And of course, here the subject is God, and we'll talk about that also, but perhaps in the next year. Heshivani achor. He sent me reeling backwards, right? There's a sense here that the elevated discourse um, already indicates that this is a, a po- uh, this is poetry, and it, it gives us a sense of, of the power of the text. Um, it also allows for for the use of words with multiple meanings, perhaps also uh, contradictory meanings. Now, another feature of poetry is its terseness. Terseness is a feature of many of the world's poetries, um, and biblical poetry are generally no longer than, uh, lines of biblical poetry are generally no longer than three or four words. Um, oftentimes, that, that leaves room for Lots of interpretation of the sentence, uh, especially because often the uh, uh, definite article and the accusative marker et is missing in poetry, making it even more elliptical. Um, so, for example, in Perak Aleph, in Migilat Echa, we have here a description of the um, of the goyim of the other nations coming into the mikdash, and we're told ki ra'ata goyim ba'a mikdasha because she saw nations coming into her mikdash. It's talking about Yerushalayim. Asher tzivita lo yavo v'kahal lach that you commanded. And here we have a rather difficult and elliptical sentence. Lo yavo v'kahal lach. They should not come into your congregation or even those members of your congregation should not come into that part of the Mikdash. It's not clear, and here you also have different Mepharshim, different commentaries explaining different uh, aspects of, uh, different understandings of this sentence. And once again, what we have here is a terse line with perhaps multiple, even contradictory meanings, which means that there are 
several different layers of meaning here. It means both that the types of people who came into the Mikdash were people who weren't even meant to be part of the congregation of God. And Rashi says there, it's talking about Ammon and Moab, who were not allowed to marry into Am Yisrael. The other possibility is that we're talking about the nature of the place. The sacredness of the place meant even that those members of our kahal, even our community members, even Amisra El itself, couldn't come into that place and look, the other nations have completely violated this place. So the the sentence itself, because of its terseness and because of its elliptical nature, uh, lends itself to two different explanations, both of which I think highlight the pain and the incongruity of the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. Now, one cannot talk about the poetry without talking about parallelism. Um, and of course, this is perhaps the first thing that most people say about biblical poetry, is that biblical poetry is characterized most of all by its binary lines, which is known as parallelism. That means that there are two lines which are often parallel to each other. Sometimes it means that they are uh, linguistically equivalent. Both of these lines basically are trying to say, say the same thing. Sometimes they're uh, parallel only in the sense that they go together, they're a contrast between each other, but that uh, but, but that doesn't mean that they say the same thing twice. Uh, now, um, I'll give you an example of this. For example, in Echa Perek Dalid, in the very first pasuk, we have the following following words Echa yuam zahav yishne haketem hatov how has the gold become dimmed has the good gold changed now there is here a sense of the gold was dimmed the good gold was changed of course here ketem and zahav are parallel one to the other but there is perhaps a slight difference between something becoming dimmed and something changing. Basically, it is a parallel. However, in um, in the next pasuk, we have a parallelism which actually is somewhat different. It's not a contrast, but it's somewhat different. In the next pasuk, in Perak Dalid, pasuk bet, we're told, Benetzion hayikarim. Hamisulaim bapaz, the children of Zion who are precious, who are as precious or who are valued like gold. So we have here two uh, parts of the line. The first part tells us that B'nai Tzion, that the children of Tzion are precious. In the second part, we're told how precious are they? They are as precious as gold, right? So we have here a parallelism which isn't exactly identical. Parallelism can strengthen an idea, can lend it power and emphasis. It can also help to explain the idea, to deepen the sense of the idea, as we just saw in these uh, two psukim. Now, of course, no discussion of poetry can omit imagery or metaphor, often thought to be the essence of poetry. Um, it's uh, the, the the sense is is that, and here I'm going to uh, quote from from again from Adele Berlin, is that poetry envisions the world metaphorically. It offers an alternative way of seeing reality. As medieval Jewish scholars put it, the best part of poetry is its falseness. That is, its figurativeness. 
Poetry, in this view, is not only elevated language, it is elevated vision. And indeed, there is a high degree of imagery in poetry in general, and in Echa as well. We have some really wonderful uh, similes, some really wonderful metaphors, and some very powerful imagery. To give an example of a, of a really very powerful simile, in Perak Bet, Pasuk Yud Gimel, we're told, Ki gadol kayam shivrech. Mi yirpa lach. When um, the objective narrator turns to Yerushalayim and says, how could I possibly comfort you? There is no comfort for you. She says, for as great as the sea is your brokenness, who can possibly cure you? And of course, the image of the sea is an extraordinary image which evokes the sense of disorientation, which evokes the sense of the depth of the pain. It, there's, you can't put an anchor in the sea. You can't bridge the sea. The sea is wild. The sea is chaotic, the sea is frightening, and all of this is a very apt image for the, the, the pain, the depth of the pain, the unbridgeable uh, quality of the pain that Yerushalayim is feeling at the time. Another perhaps uh, interesting Example of this is in Paragimel Pasuktet when um, the uh, Gever, the suffering man, the anonymous suffering man, is describing God and he says, Dov Orevhuli. Ari bimistarim. He is a a bear ambushing me. He is a, a lion in a hidden place waiting to ambush me. Right? There's a sense here that this this tremendous descri- comparison or description of God as a as a, a wild animal that is waiting to leap upon its prey. And that's just an unforgettable image. It evokes all sorts of of, of feelings in terms of what the giver is feeling about God at this time, it's not at all a, uh, a nice image. And it's one that we'll talk about when we get to Paragimel, but just again to have a sense of how important the imagery is for evoking the kinds of feelings that we are supposed to be sensing when we're reading through the text. Um, another, I think, really very uh, um, outstanding image is one that appears in the first parak in Megillat Echa, when the... Um, when the uh, Yerushalayim herself is describing how God is punishing her. And she says, Niskad op sha'ai biyado, n'istargu alu al tsavari, hichshil kochi. And this is a very, very hard pasuk to translate. And of course, that's one of the problems in um, Echa with its use of elevated poetry. I'm going to offer for now a loose translation just to give a sense of the power of the imagery that somehow the yoke of my sins became, he twisted it in his hands, and he twisted it around my neck, and uh, it, it depleted me of my strength. Now, um, basically what this, what this image suggests is that her own sins have been woven together into a rope by God, which is designed to choke Yerushalayim and deplete her of her strength. So I think that that is an absolutely uh, extraordinary image because at the same time that it describes Yerushalayim's punishment, it also describes that the medium of punishment are Yerushalayim's own sins, which we'll have occasion to speak about uh, further on in this series of lectures. Um, I, I want to also mention 
um, uh, the very important metaphor of Yerushalayim or the images of Yerushalayim that appear throughout Echa. There are some contradictory metaphors. Yerushalayim is both a widow and a mother who has lost her child, a widow who has lost her husband. That's the very first image in Echa. Echa Yashava Vadad Ha'ir Rabati Am Hayata how has this city sat lonely, this city that was once filled with people, is now like a widow, right? So this widow is the description of Yerushalayim in the aftermath of her um, of her destruction and her, her uh, people having gone into Galut. She's described as a widow. But later on in the parak, she's described as a mother who has lost her children, right? Her young babies have gone into captivity before the enemy, this is a little bit of a different description. And these um, these images of Yerushalayim are very important. It's a very different kind of pain. When Yerushalayim is described as a widow, she seems vulnerable. She seems um, unable, perhaps, to protect herself, to care for herself. Uh, and this goes along with the image of Yerushalayim as a violated woman that we see throughout the first parak. However, when we see Yerushalayim as a mother who has lost her children, we see this sort of inconsolable pain of someone who has lost their future, right? And that really, I think, is is a very different kind of metaphor, but it, nonetheless, both of these metaphors appear in Megillat Echa, and they're both very important for understanding Megillat Echa. One other thing that I'm going to touch upon only briefly, and maybe not even at this point, certainly offer um, examples for it, is um, the 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 sounds of poetry. Poetry, as Adele Berlin says, is an auditory medium. Sound and the nexus of sound and meaning contribute to the heightening of the discourse and to the effect on the listener. It's for this reason that poetry is related to music. And of course, the word sheer in, in um, Tanakh means both a poem and um, and music. Um, and so we have all sorts of word and sound repetition and pattering, patternings um, uh, which which give also, which heighten also our, our uh, sense of the meaning and the feeling that is created uh, by the poem itself. I'm not going to go into that right now because I have other things that I want to speak about. The, um, the, the, uh, the, the main thing or perhaps the main idea that I want to develop right now are the structures that we have in poetry. There are many different structures that we have in poetry. Um, Chiastic structures, acrostic structures, inclusios, refrains, uh, all of these structures offer a certain kind of, of, um, of, of sense of the unity of the poem. Um, this is promoted by these formal devices uh, like acrostics or inclusios or refrains also give us a sense of the unity of the poem. Uh, we're going to talk today a little bit about chiastic structures in Megillat Echa, and we're also going to talk about the acrostics, which of course is very important. What is a chiastic structure? A chiastic structure is one which has been identified throughout biblical literature, it's an ABC, CBA structure. Sometimes it's shorter, ABBA. Sometimes it's longer, ABCD, DCBA. And um, the classic example of the chiastic structure in Tanakh uh, appears in Bereshit, Perak Tet, Pasuk Vav, Shofech Dam Ha'adam Ba'adam Damo Ishafech. 
right? The one who spills the blood of man, his blood shall be spilled. There's a sense that the chiastic structure, the tightness of the chiastic structure, right? You hear that? A, B, C, C, B, A. Shofech dam ha'adam, ba'adam demo yishafech. Right? The sense here is that uh, it's it's tight. There's a sense of schar onesh. Everything that someone does, he receives back. Right? There's a sense almost of the harmony and the neatness of this structure. Now, classic structures don't always convey the same idea, but that I think is the classic chiastic structure, the one that that appears in Breshit Perktet to convey a sense of retribution of whatever somebody does, they receive the same punishment if they sin, they receive a parallel punishment. Um, now, um, Gabi Cohen, who wrote a very nice uh, series of lectures on all of the Chamesh Megillot, which actually has recently been reprinted, Iyunim um, Megillot, um, wrote in one of his essays on Megillat Echa, he identified a chiastic structure in Perak Aleph of Megillat Echa and in Perak Bet. Now, in general, I just want to make one comment about this series of shirim, and that is that it's very, very difficult to uh, make an audio shir on Megillat Echa with the assumption that most people are not going to be having a Tanakh in front of them and are not, or perhaps listening to this in the car. Um, it, it is very difficult to learn and certainly to teach Megillat Echa without the text in front of us. And I'm going to try to to always assume that people don't have the text in front of them and to try to make it as easy as possible, although I admit that there are certain limitations here. Um, now, in, in searching for a chiastic structure in Perak Aleph, um, we didn't uh, he, he obviously does not find throughout the parak as tight a chiastic structure as the one which I just mentioned in Breshi Perak Ted. But what he tries to do is is to find a similar word in the first pasuk and the last pasuk, followed by a similar word in the second pasuk and the second to last pasuk, etc., etc. Now, what he does here, I think, is something which really um, results in an extraordinary um, uh, discovery of uh, what I believe is really a strong chiastic structure in the first parak of Echa. So, for example, in Pasuk Aleph, we have the word Rabati Am, right? The city that was filled with people. And in the last Pasuk, we have the word Rabot Anchotai, right? Because my, my moans are great. In the second Pasuk, we have the phrase, Menachim, she has no comforter. And in the second to last Pasuk, we have the phrase, Ein Menachim Li. I have no comforter. Now, this phrase appears um, uh, two other times, or in a similar variation, in a variation of this of this phrase, two other times in the parak. So that's not itself a hard proof. But if we continue, we see that in the third pasuk we have the phrase "bein hamitzarim," all of her uh, pursuers caught up with her between the narrow straits. And in the third to last pasuk we have "re'ei Hashem kitzarli lukad." For I am troubled, using the word tsar, like um, mitzarim. In the fourth pasuk, we have a mention of the kohanim, kohaneha neenachim, her priests are moaning. And in the fourth to last pasuk, we have the word kohanai uzkenai ba'ir gavau. I believe that these are the only two places in the parak where the kohanim are mentioned. So again, that strengthens the structure. In the fifth pasuk, we have this description of um, 
Her young children went into captivity before the enemy, and in the fifth to last pasuk we're told, "Bitulotai uvachurai halchu vashevi." Also, again, the phrase "halchu shvi halchu vashevi." Right. So the sense is is that um, in the in the in the two matching sides talk about her children who go into captivity, and it uses the same exact phrase. Now, um, this structure, which has been identified uh, by Gabi Cohen, um, I think it gives us a sense of the cyclical nature of Perak Aleph. Perak Aleph creates this cycle from which it is almost impossible to emerge, right? Instead of giving a sense of schar ve'onesh, as we saw in Bereshit Perak Tet, of uh, retribution and, and the, uh, the sense that everything that a person does, he receives back the same kind of punishment, I think there's a very different idea that is suggested here by this chiastic structure, and that is, again, the interminable nature of the grief, of the mourning, right? The same thing I was feeling at the beginning of the parak, I'm feeling at the end of the parak. If in the beginning of the parak I have no comforter, well, at the end of the parak I also have no comforter. If in the beginning of the parak I have, um, I'm speaking of the children who have gone into captivity, at the end of the parak it's the same exact thing. In other words, it deepens our sense that there is no way out. There's no way out of the pain. It's a cycle of pain. I think it's a very powerful medium that is used to convey this sense of the interminable nature of the pain. We're going to see, uh, we're going to see a similar thing in Perak Bet. I don't have time right now to explore it. I will try to, to at least mention it when we get to Perak Bet. But for today, I just want to give you a sense of the way in which chiastic structures may appear in Migilat Echa. I want to say one more thing about this chiastic structure, and that is that sometimes there's an inner chiasm. In other words, within the larger chiastic structure, you can have a smaller chiastic structure. One thing that I have noted is that oftentimes when you have an acrostic structure or an alphabetic structure, right, an aleph, bet, gimel, which of course we're going to talk about in a moment, is one of the outstanding uh, structural features of Migilat Echa. When you have an acrostic structure, Oftentimes what you have is, is that the two middle psukim of the acrostic structure are in fact related to each other chiastically. This is true in Eshet Chayel, in the famous um, acrostic structure at the end of Sefer Mishlei. It's true in the Mizmor, Mizmor Kuf um, Memhei, which is commonly known as Ashrei. Of course, it's called Tihilala David. If you look at the two middle psukim, they are related to each other chiastically. And it's true also about Echa, Perak Aleph, and Perak Bet. So once again, we'll take the example of Perak Aleph for lack of time. We, we won't look right now at Perak Bet. Let's take the two middle psukim. That's Pasuk Yud Aleph and Yud Bet. We're in Pasuk Yud Aleph. We're told that Yerushalayim turns to God with the words Re'e Hashem Vabita. In Pasuk Yud Bet, Yerushalayim turns to the passersby with the word with the words Habitu Uru. In other words, a chiastic structure. If in Pasuk Yud Aleph, the um, the uh, Yerushalayim turns to God and says Re'e Vehabita. In Pasuk Yud Bet, Yerushalayim turns to the passersby and says. Habitu Uru. This idea pulls together the middle of the poem with the following um, uh, message. Yerushalayim feels completely alone, completely abandoned, both by God and by people. And so initially, she turns to God and she says, God, just look at me, right? It's a very minimalistic request. Just look at me. 
Feeling to get a response, she turns to the passers-by. Who are the passers-by? The passers-by are basically no one, right? Or no one important. Not someone with whom Yerushalayim has a relationship, but rather anyone who happens by. There's a desperation. She first turns to the source of her comfort, or the most likely source of her comfort, meaning God. When failing to get a response from God, she has no choice other than to just grab the nearest passerby by the shirt collar and say, just look at me, right? So we really get a sense of Yerushalayim's loneliness, her sense of alienation, and all of this is really deepened by the the inner structure of the chaotic structure, right uh, smack in the middle of this um, of this. Uh, larger chiastic structure of the parak. And the same uh, idea occurs in parak bet, where we have an inner chiastic structure in psukim yud aleph and yud bet. Once again, the two middle psukim. The same as said is true in other acrostic structures. Now, uh, before we get to the acrostics, which I want to end by talking about the acrostics, I just want to say a couple words about um, about rhythm, about meter, and about rhythm. The whole question of whether or not we can find uh, any sort of metrical system or metrical regularity in biblical question is uh, a source of great controversy. There is no uh, real consensus on whether or not there is meter in biblical poetry. And, of course, uh, the question of what meter actually means, how we define meter, is also a question. Um, I want to mention today a scholar by the name of Carl Buda, who, uh, based on the number of stress syllables in any given sentence, identified a particular kind of meter that is uh, particular to lamentations, that specifically appears in lamentations. In fact, he uh, identified it as the kina meter, as opposed to meter of other biblical poetic sections. Not everybody, obviously, as I mentioned before, agrees with Carl Buddha's um, idea, and yet I think that it's worthy, certainly, of note in this particular shear. Uh, generally, he, he claims biblical co- poetry consists of a sentence which is divided into two parts, as we mentioned, by some sort of conceptual break. And the two lines generally have equal meter, right? Consider the beginning of Shirat Ha'azinu and think of the stressed syllables. Ha'azina, Hashamayim, Adabera, V'tishma, Ha'aretz, Imrefi. Okay, we're not talking about the amount of words, we're talking about the amount of stressed syllables. So if you heard, in the first sentence, there were three stressed syllables, and in the second sentence, there were three stressed syllables. Now, um, it, what Buddha says, or what he said, and he, he uh, wrote this at the end of the 19th century, I believe in an article which he wrote in 1883, um, he was a German scholar, and what he said was that in Kina meter, the first part of the line, no matter what meter it has, is longer than the second part of the line. I'm going to show this to you in um, in Echa in a moment, but first I want to read for you a pasuk from Amos, which actually identifies itself as a Kina. Uh, and this pasuk is in Perak Hay, pasuk Bet, is after Amos says, Shimu'at davar zashar nochi noselechem Kina Beit Yisrael. Listen to this. Lamentation, which I'm going to say to you, Israel. Listen to the lamentation. Listen to the stressed syllables. Nafla lotosif kum bitulat Israel. Okay, so it's three on the first side, two stressed syllables in the second. That was equal uh, all the time. Maybe I mean. 
maybe not even most of the time. But there is something very um, uh, prominent about this unusual meter. What Buddha says is an unusual meter in Miglatecha. It appears um, uh, frequently in Miglatecha. I'll read you a couple examples. In Perak Aleph, Pasuk Hei, Hayu Tsareha Lerosh Oiveha Shalu. That's the first sentence. Olaleha Halchushvi Lifnetar. Okay, those are two separate sentences which have two parts. In the first one, the first sentence has three beats, the second has two. In the second uh, sentence that I read to you, the first sentence has three beats, the second has one. Now, uh, what Buddha wants to suggest is that um, the effect of this particular kind of meter is a peculiar limping rhythm in which the second part of the sentence dies away and expires before we expect it to. Again, most of us read the Tanakh today. Most people in ancient times did not read the Tanakh. They heard the Tanakh. We're meant to be the biblical listener. And if, in fact, we are familiar with biblical poetry enough that we know that the two lines are supposed to have equal meter, then you're straining to hear that last syllable. And that last syllable never comes. And that perhaps indicates exhaustion, fatigue, the inability to finish a sentence, perhaps also the choking back of the last word by a person who is sobbing too hard or too choked up to continue speaking. That's the effect that is created by this uneven meter, by this peculiar limping rhythm, which is which was identified by this scholar. And perhaps that also is meant to have its effect on the biblical listener. Um, the final thing that I want to talk about today are the acrostics. And I've alluded to this several times in this parak. The acrostic structure, each parak is written in an alphabetic structure. Um, you know, this, this idea, this, this kind of structure is found in many places in Tanakh. In our particular book, it's found in Parak Aleph, it's found in Parak Bet, it's found in Parak Gimel as triple acrostics. We have Aleph, 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 Bet, Bet, Bet. And when we get to Parak Gimel, we will discuss the the uniqueness of the acrostic structure in Perak Gimel. It's also found in Perak Dalid. The acrostic structure is not found, interestingly, in Perak Hay, although Perak Hay does have 22 psukim, indicating that either it was written for the purpose of using acrostics or it's meant to correspond to the other chapters. In any case, we feel when we read Perak Hay that it is missing its, its natural acrostic structure that would enable it to be uh, similar to the other prakim. So also when we get to Perak Hay, we'll have to discuss what is different in Perak Hay that, um, that, that requires a different kind of structure. We have many different acrostic structures in Jewish literature. I mentioned previously, Mizmor Kuf Memhei, better known as Ashrei, Eshet Chayel. We have all sorts of, um, of, of piyutim, of songs written that we say in tefillah that are made up of acrostic structure. Acrostics are, first of all, a good mnemonic device, right? A good way to remember different parts of tefillah, especially when people were not necessarily, um, didn't necessarily have access to sidurim. Um, and yet, I think, as is very nicely expressed um, in Vidoy, uh, which is also which is also written in an acrostic structure, is the 
totality of the idea that is being expressed, right? So that in Vidoy, we say, well, we can't possibly enumerate all of our sins. It's impossible. So instead, we say a list of sins, which is um, from Aleph Ad-Taf, which is designed to indicate the comprehensive nature of our sinfulness. In fact, I think many of us, when we see the um, Vidoy booklets, when we use those Vidoy booklets that were put out by various people, oftentimes it will say, <clears throat> when you say the word Ashamnu, think of all of the different sins that you have done with the letter Aleph, or at least Bimit Kaven, have some sort of um, of, of uh, intention to include those sins with the letter Aleph. Now the idea here in Megillat um, Echa is again, that what we're suggesting is is that it's impossible to convey all of the pain that uh, we feel in the aftermath of the Chorban. And so the use of acrostics comes to express the totality of the anguish, the all-encompassing grief that cannot be expressed with mere words in the alphabet, but rather must use a technique that conveys the totality short of speaking all day. And so the acrostic structure uh, gives a sense of comprehensiveness. It also perhaps limits our um, our ability to emote endlessly about the grief that is felt in the aftermath of the Chorban, while, of course, at the same time, enabling us to convey this idea of comprehensiveness. Um, there is one more thing that I want to mention in terms of uh, structural techniques in Migilat Echa, and this will be developing further in our next year, so perhaps I'll also whet your appetite a little bit for the next year, and that is the different speakers that are used to convey the ideas in Echa. We have um, the Yerushalayim, who speaks about herself. She speaks in first-person singular, although presumably it would seem that she is the collective voice. Uh, we have an objective narrator. We have the Gever, who is the grieving individual. And very infrequently, but um, but twice in Migilat Echa, we have the communal voice, the first-person Plural. We will search our ways. We will we will research them. We will search them out, and then we will return to God. So there's the we sound. Now, of course, the question that we always ask when we have a switch in speakers, and interestingly enough, sometimes the speaker switches. Uh, not just in the middle of a parak, but sometimes even in the middle of a pasuk, right? And that's extremely powerful medium. The question that we're going to ask, of course, is who are these different speakers in Echa? Which different voices are employed to convey the pain? And, of course, most importantly, why is each one used in a different place? Why might we use the eye of the individual as opposed to the collective eye, as opposed to the communal voice? And, of course, perhaps most, uh, um, most importantly, why would we use an objective narrator when we're trying to convey powerful emotions. So these and other ideas we will be exploring in our next class on Megillat Echa, Perak Aleph.